Well, welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is the 2021 summer interlude between seasons. This summer, we're sharing brand new lectures by Joe Boot from a series produced in partnership with Answers in Genesis called Creation, Cross, and Culture. Catch a new episode each week, and we'll be back in September with a new season of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Darwinism and the Cult of the Expert. A sober look at contemporary society reveals that Descartes' dictum remains as pertinent as ever. There is nothing so absurd or incredible that it has not been asserted by one philosopher or another. In a similar vein, George Orwell once remarked that some ideas are so foolish, only an intellectual could believe them. Ours is certainly an era of intense intellectual activism that calls for a distinctly Christian response. The late modern world has seen the emergence of many oddities, one of which is the appearance of a new self-anointed elite class, the intelligentsia. One such individual still celebrated amongst cultural elites today is George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright and public intellectual prominent in the first half of the 20th century. Beyond writing plays, Shaw held forth on all kinds of cultural and political subjects and made grand sweeping pronouncements about his fellow human beings. Like many British intellectuals of the era, he was a Fabian socialist who nonetheless regarded ordinary working class people as contemptible with, quote, no right to live. Shaw was a fan of dictators and dictatorships precisely because he resented ordinary people influencing culture, believing they could not be trusted to make sensible decisions. On leaving for an African vacation in 1935, he remarked, It is nice to go for a holiday and know that Hitler has settled everything so well in Europe. Though Hitler's anti-Semitism eventually made it untenable for Shaw to support the national socialism of the Nazis, he remained keen on Stalin and the Soviet dictatorship. So much for enlightened elite opinion. It is a puzzling question for many why so many seemingly brilliant people can be so utterly foolish and bereft of wisdom or judgment in the ordinary affairs of life. In scripture, King Solomon gives us the key to understanding why intellect is no guarantee of true insight, wisdom, or sound judgment. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. If the foundation of wisdom is missing, if the principal part of knowledge is neglected, then any knowledge structure built upon it is inherently unstable. It may appear to be elegant and well-proportioned, but when the winds of real life blow against it, it will be found wanting. Intellect, intelligence and wisdom do not always coincide 
are certainly not identical and should never be conflated. A person may have the ability to grasp complex ideas and even have the capacity to understand their relevant implications for a given area of thought, but wisdom is of another character altogether. Choosing the occupation of the intellectual is certainly no guarantee of obtaining wisdom. Now, to identify certain persons as intellectuals is not to make a judgment about their intelligence or ability relative to other members of society, but simply to highlight their chosen vocation, the production of ideas. In the occupational construction of these ideas, the modern intellectual is usually a person who claims allegiance to a particular kind of thinking and a commitment to the use of certain tools. That is, they frequently claim to be on the side of the canons of independent reason and science broadly conceived. To be accused of denying science or undermining sound reason is to be avoided at all costs, lest the offender be placed under censure by their peers or cast out of the orthodox circles of the intelligentsia. In addition, ideas that are viewed as progressive or nuanced, novel or artistically complex tend to be applauded, whereas more traditional ideas are frequently ridiculed as reactionary, simplistic or outmoded. It is for these reasons that openly and authentically Christian thinkers are rarely welcomed into the exclusive chambers of orthodox intellectual elites. This exclusivity, resting upon the dubious claim of intellectual superiority, presupposes an idea going back to the Enlightenment, that there is an autonomous standard of reason established by an elite class before which all ideas must present themselves for judgment. Here we encounter the philosophical assumption that human thinking can function as the lawgiver of the world, prescribing from thought a law to nature. Contemporary trends in this form of thinking, very much in vogue with modern intellectuals, hold to a social construction theory of reality. We can create the world we live in by our thought and language. It is not unusual for intellectuals to clothe the various judgments of their enlightened thought in the garb of neutrality. But to make this appeal to a supposed neutrality, the basis of which is nothing but an establishment consensus, is to assert that our rational behavior is self-normed. This is something the thinking Christian is obligated to reject. Rather, the criteria for rational communication is given with creation and holds for all rational pursuits. But such an assertion of universal, unchanging normative standards for thinking immediately threatens the pretended autonomy of the intellectual's thought. After all, how can human thinking be a law unto itself if it is bound by normative creational standards? 
Both convictions cannot be true at the same time. To make this point a little clearer, it is important to recognize that there is a difference between a norm or law and that which is being subject to that norm. Our thought activities are subjected to norms or principles constantly. But what is the nature of those norms? Are they generated by the thought of elites? Or are they created, supra-individual and universal normative standards? This is an inescapable question, and it immediately exposes the non-neutrality of all thought, and shows that a prevailing trust in autonomous reason is not itself rational, but makes its appeal to beliefs and convictions that transcend or go before the rational aspect of life. Furthermore, logical principles alone do not provide the grounds for believing the content of certain arguments to be true or false. They can only help determine if the structure of a given argument is valid. In other words, we already have to believe in something to begin to justify something else. Remember, it is not thinking that thinks, but human beings who are more than rational thought that think. All human beings have a spiritual ethos, basic beliefs and religious motives that give direction to their thinking, shaping the social vision they advocate. Intellectuals are no different. This brings us to an obvious conclusion. Intellectuals are informed by one worldview or another, which always underlies their efforts to account for either physical or social phenomena informing the solutions they offer. The first truly modern intellectual, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, made much of loving the people, freeing them from the shackles of civilization and tradition and establishing their general will. But in the end, he could not disguise his disdain for humanity and likened the masses of ordinary people to a stupid, pulsillanimous, invalid. This was because Rousseau's worldview and consequent concept of society was anti-Christian to the core. The Christian thinker must not look at the world as a conundrum to be fixed by his or her cognitive efforts, nor can our inherited institutions be seen as the root of all evil in need of revolutionizing in terms of the euphoric visions of intellectuals. Sin is not rooted in human institutions, but in the heart of man himself. Critically, the gospel of Christ may not be regarded as an inspirational idea that offers solutions to various social problems. Rather, the gospel declares the kingdom and power of God manifest in both the creative and redemptive work of Jesus Christ, which transforms the heart of man and in so doing makes a new creature out of him. The fruit of this transformation is a spirit-given vision for Christ's kingdom to come and the will of the Father to be done in every aspect of creation. This God-ordained vision calls not for self-anointed experts, but for faithful and spirit-anointed servants 
committed to the word of God and excellence for the glory of God. This brings us to the heart of the difference between the Christian and secular intellectual. It may initially seem a little self-defeating for a Christian thinker and cultural apologist to be criticizing the vocation of intellectuals. Am I not just soaring off the branch I am sitting on? My own work almost wholly consists in studying, writing or speaking. In what way does this differ from the work of any other intellectual? Well, first, we have already seen that the foundation for thinking between the Christian and non-Christian is radically different. One professes autonomy, self-law. The other, theonomy, God's law, meaning a total surrender to the law word of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the fantasy of autonomy, the modern intellectual essentially pretends to the realization of a new priesthood within society, embodying a new and creative source of authority. They invariably regard themselves as representing a concentration point of human knowledge and understanding. As secular bishops, they mediate their ideas by influencing and shaping those who will then proclaim and disseminate their vision for them, a kind of substitute clergy in media and education, law, politics and arts, known as the intelligentsia. Only by a deliberate act of submission to God's word revelation can the Christian thinker avoid the conceits of a godless intelligentsia. This submission to God's word must in turn lead to the development of a coherent and systematic Christian world and life view that serves the kingdom by mediating the power of the gospel to every aspect of human life in creation. Second, because of a submission to God and his word revelation, not only is the Christian thinker totally subject to scripture, he or she is also accountable to the normative structure of created reality as God has ordained it. This means that Christian thinking is willingly subject to God's word in creation and does not attempt to remake it after human imagination. From the time of Plato and Aristotle, intellectuals have tended to engage in abstract thought experiments based on groundless philosophical assumptions. From Plato's Republic and Aristotle's politics to Sir Thomas More's Utopia and Karl Marx's Das Kapital, Western civilization and beyond has been impacted by different styles of social thought experiments that deal with people and culture in the abstract as these thinkers would prefer persons and the world to be, but which do not really grapple with the world and history in its givenness. Yet there is nothing simply abstract about these thought experiments. Ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. 
the diabolic atheistic materialism of Marx thought with its abstract revolutionary masses throwing off the evils of wage, labour and private property, supposedly leading mankind toward a stateless and work-free world, has cost millions of people their lives. Rousseau's idealised noble savage and John Rawls' equally preposterous veil of ignorance in contractarian theories of society, positing imaginary worlds free from metaphysical beliefs or cultural history, are as reckless as they are impossible. One of the most significant and destructive cases of unaccountable intellectualism is that of Charles Darwin. Darwin was not original in advocating a naturalistic explanation for life. Rather, he served as the catalyst for a revival of ancient paganism at a moment in Western history when society was clamouring for such a thing. Darwin was critically shaped by the thinking of his time. Of particular formative influence was the faith of the French philosophes of the previous century, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, chief among them. These men embodied the spirit of the Enlightenment, turning to a Greek conception of a first cause, not the God of the Bible, but a principle of rationality and natural law that operated independently of the Creator, who had long since withdrawn from creation. The key to understanding Darwin lies in the Enlightenment religion of rational theism, the prevailing doctrine of the Church of the time. This enables us to see his doctrine of evolution for what it was, a kind of theodicy, which is an attempt to solve or respond to the problem of evil, something that Darwin grappled with all his life. From birth, Darwin had been exposed to a doctrine of God who was distant from creation and had set mechanistic laws in motion for the governance of the world. Darwin's dilemma was that the problem of morality seems to require a divine presence. But the problem of natural evil, like birth defects, cancers, earthquakes, and so forth, seem to presume divine absence, or so he thought. This is critical to understanding the modern effort to harmonize Christian theism and evolution, and the inherent tension produced within this system of warring concepts. Darwin's theory of evolution was a product of his faulty conception of God and was therefore a negative theological argument. His false doctrine of God gave rise to a false theory in the natural sciences. Having embraced the argument from intellectual necessity, that is, an unbroken continuity of natural causes, the foundation had been laid for Darwin to develop a theodicy, thereby distancing God from the imperfection, cruelty, and evil in the world. One of the differences between the occupation of intellectuals, like Darwin, and that of the engineer, is that engineers find themselves constantly accountable to the real world if they make mistakes. 
If I make a mistake with a historical reference in one of my articles or lectures, I may get a kind or nasty email from a reader pointing out my error. But if someone like my brother Daniel, who is a heating engineer designing and installing complex heating systems in commercial properties, makes a serious mistake, real college dorm rooms or somebody's office will be flooded or even explode. There is an immediate accountability here in the concrete world of experience, an external standard of accountability. An engineer whose designs and work prove to be a repeated failure will not long be in the trade. Yet if an intellectual has a grand idea, happens to be influential, and the idea is applied but fails, that thinker is frequently seen as a brave pioneer or prophet out of time. Alternatively, the blame is placed on society or others' faulty interpretation or application, or the stupidity of the masses for the grand idea not working. Darwin and Marx were contemporaries, and their ideas share some important similarities regarding the nature of the world and the role of man in it. Darwinism and Marxism have worked hand in glove to motivate some of the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. Various shades of Marxism have been tried numerous times on various continents with the same devastating and tragic results. But that doesn't stop intellectuals committed to an abstract ideology, continuing to venerate Marxist social theory and blame a faulty application or nuance of interpretation for the economic devastation and vicious death of multitudes. This is because their criteria for judgment is internal, not external. Man must prescribe, not discover and acknowledge the normative structures for human life. Thus, in the name of intellectual freedom, unaccountability becomes a hallmark of the occupation. George Bernard Shaw, for example, is still adored by many elites despite his woeful judgment regarding Hitler and Stalin, and the same is true of Jean-Paul Sartre, despite his public support for Mao's China and his advocacy of the use of violence to achieve his objectives. Noted British intellectual John Stuart Mill went so far as to argue that intellectuals should be free even from social standards, all the while setting those standards for others. It is existing institutions and traditions, norms and standards that must change to accommodate the intellectual ideas, not the thinker who must be subject to created norms in the real world. Now in marked contrast to this, the Christian thinker is to explore scripture and the various spheres of the creation order as revelation from God. These have a norming impact on Christian thought, giving concrete direction to the believing intellectual's labors. Christian thought products can then be judged by and made accountable to an external standard, just as the prophets in scripture were judged in terms of whether their prophecy came to pass. 
So in the memorable words of the historian Paul Johnson, we must at all times remember what intellectuals habitually forget. The worst of all despotisms is the heartless tyranny of ideas.